Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. So, uh... Yes, I do have some handouts over there. Um, the topic for tonight, multiple belongings, is the question of can you practice more than one religion? And then I want to turn that question a little bit upside down to say, does anyone actually just practice one religion? Right? Uh, there's lots of uh, literature out there. In fact, I listened to a podcast today with a, a pastor of a United Church of Canada congregation talking about uh, multiple belongings, uh, you know, that how do we minister to people that claim to have more than one uh, religion. And, but the, the question never came to, does anyone really just practice one religion? And, uh, and what does that mean? This is a, a question that isn't really new, but is one that scholars are really interested in in the last five to 10 years as we're talking a lot about concepts of uh, multiplicity and plurality among individuals. Um, I can give you a little bit of a history of that, but it, this is also wrapped up in the question of whether people of other religions go to heaven or whether they go to hell. That's inevitably part of the conversation the way Christians have framed it. And we, can, we have a couple different avenues we can go. Um, but I was thinking about tonight, uh, well, I've been thinking about it for a while, but. Uh, Last Sunday, I went to the York United Church of Christ Association gathering, which was at Faith UCC in, in the city. And uh, uh, the pastor from Heidelberg uh, UCC uh, was showing me pictures from a baptism she had from that morning of a child that is from a, a family that is Christian but has Zoroastrian roots. And they actually did some Zoroastrian candle lighting rituals and... They were wearing traditional Zoroastrian outfits, and apparently an uncle is a priest in the Zoroastrian tradition. She came with like the red dot on her forehead, and she didn't know a whole lot about Zoroastrianism before this, and said, you know, this is the first Zoroastrian baptism I've ever attended, you know, and, but it was clearly a Christian, it was clearly a Christian practice, but it was wrapped up in all this other stuff, and she, I think that's really cool. I don't, I'm not sure that would fly in a lot of other churches. Heidelberg is a lot like us uh, here at St. Paul's. Um, but it speaks to the hybrid, the religious hybridity that's going on all around us in, in very explicit ways. I'm going to suggest tonight that it's happening in more implicit ways also. And um, my experience has been the more that I've learned about other religions, the more I've taken my own more seriously. Uh, in fact, I think one of the reasons why I found my way back into Christianity in a serious way was because I sort of took this divergent side tour into the Baha'i religion for a while and studied atheism for a long time and sort of brought the gifts of those things back with me without, without saying I'm trying to do both. 
Um, and I learned a lot about Hinduism as a, as a young adult. And those things helped me see my religion in a new way. Um, and this happened a lot from a friend of mine that I met in a college named Sid, which was short for Siddhartha. His mother was a, a philosophy professor who died of breast cancer while I was a student. And uh, when uh, her family apparently had connections with the Dalai Lama, so the Dalai Lama came to Pennsylvania and had a luncheon for all his friends. So I got to be there with the Dalai Lama, and that was cool. And I might come back to that a little bit later, but Sid and his, his mother, uh, Shambhu, uh, both claimed to be uh, Hindu Buddhists. And I remember saying to myself for the first time hearing that, like, what does that even mean, right? How are you a Hindu and a Buddhist? And uh, the, the, that, that moment of hearing that has really stuck with me all these years of, that just made absolutely no sense, but it totally made sense to them, right? It doesn't matter if it made sense to me. It's what they were, it's how they identify. In fact, that's how a lot of people in India identify as well. Uh, even though there are Buddhists that definitely are not Hindu, and there are Hindus that definitely aren't Buddhists, uh, but there is many that practice them together, as well as with Sikhism and Jainism and all sorts of other things in India. So I'm curious if any of you have other stories to share or experiences that are similar to that, or... Mm. But he's a Buddhist Lutheran. Because he doesn't look at Buddhism as necessarily so much as a, a religion as a, a way of life. And so he interprets that within his Lutheran structure. And um, it's, it's pretty cool. And my mother actually is United States of Canada. Okay. In fact, the United Church of Canada is, Canada is really struggling right now with the revelation of an of active pastor in a church saying that she's an atheist for years. And the United Church of Canada has said that she is no longer recognized as a pastor, but the church won't fire her uh, because they want to keep her as the pastor um, so that, that atheism or her kind of uh, spiritual secularism, I think is what she's really doing, is... Um, sort of happening in this United Church of Canada congregation. You know, my mom was um, so the closest it related to Memphis mm -hmm. back when I was in the 50s when I was born. And so it ended up looking at Methodist and Presbyterian. My dad was a good Scotsman. He was Presbyterian. And so that's really dumb. But I find it very difficult to just say I am. Right. Well, it's not a big jump from Methodist to Presbyterian, but unless you're... I always say that Presbyterians sweat on the upper lip, you know, um, there's something indigenous to them. But uh, there are examples of Christian churches worldwide who have uh, intermingled with indigenous religious traditions. I think that's happening in Canada. Uh, New Zealand and the Anglican church there is probably the best example of that, that they have their entirely different common book of prayer that uh, within the Anglican communion that is intermixed with the Maori tribal religions there. Well, other people, other folks. Well, on that topic, I mean, Christianity itself, how, how many of our traditions are intermingled with other ideas? I mean, if, if, you know, um, and that's when I was going to spread Christianity, things like, like Easter itself, 
and the adoption of a small morality makes no sense for Jesus, but in the, in the native, you know, a lot of uh, Celtic religions, that's common. The same way with Christian, you know, Christmas and adopting many of the traditions of, um, of uh, the, the Druids with um, the solstice. Mm -hmm. you know, adopting a lot of these traditions over the years that seem kind of that don't really seem to make a lot of sense on the surface until you understand the history of sort of how Christianity spread by adopting the, the traditions of other faiths. I know um, in a lot of um, island cultures there's a combination of Catholicism with Santeria and have you, have you ever seen a Santeria ritual? Very interesting. I saw someone crack an egg over someone's uh, belly, you know, and, and start scrying the blood designs in it. But this was done by people who identify as practicing Catholics, you know. Others. Good job. To the east, going to the yeah. east. Mm -hmm. and possibly did, mm -hmm. and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I think that you can hold a lot of different ideals and philosophies with your personal theology without um, being a synergist, and uh, you know, I don't really see anything wrong with that. Well, that's an interesting point. I, I hadn't, I hadn't put that on, that down in my notes as an avenue to go in, but that's an interesting point that. For a lot of folks, for a long time, to even start going down this path, you have to admit that you're a synergist or a syncretist, which is to say that all religions are the same or there's some kind of difference in language, but the ideas are the same. I mean, that was an idea that I very much explored a lot when I kind of dabbled in the Baha'i religion. Um, but, but ultimately, like, I think it's okay to say there are differences and... And, and, and not try to combine things in ways that might not... Just because there's a similar idea between two religions doesn't mean that they're absolutely compatible or the same. Um, and it's okay that they don't always sort of line up in a way that's neat and clean. Um, I mean, for example, there's a, a woman who is a... Uh, I don't know what her title is uh, in a particular sect of Buddhism, uh, but she's also a practicing Jew in the community. Um, and she explains to me that, you know, I don't see Buddhism as a, uh, a religion, I see it as a philosophy, but for a whole lot of people in the world, it is a religion, right? So just because you don't say it is doesn't mean it isn't. Right. But, um, but at the same time, like the categories of what we mean by religion are really fuzzy when we start going down these paths. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there are those fundamentalists that have like the big line, big list of things on a chart that are evil. You know, everything from Dungeons and Dragons uh, to yoga, you know, uh, that these are things that are going to send you to hell. Um, other thoughts? When, when I think about the topic tonight, I remember years ago reading the Dune novels. And if anybody's ever mm-hmm. read the Dune novels, they're exceptionally mm-hmm. dense. Mm-hmm. And something not really focused on, but he did actually, one of the religions, actually, a couple of religions, is what is, I had to Google because I couldn't remember the name, but actually, Buddhism is actually Zen Buddhists. And then there's also novel Christianity, which is a uh, basically, merger of Native American faith and Christianity. And I was thinking, like, when that novel written? It was written in 1965. And that was probably really at near the height of Christianity in the United States. You know, that, that's when churches like this were filled with standing room home on every, every Sunday. And for someone like Frank Herbert to even float the idea of these religions merging and morphing like that it seemed pretty revolutionary. It was the last wave of the baby boomers still in high school yeah. in their newly constructed religious education wings in churches. That's when all that stuff was built. It struck me that, like, that, that getting being talked about that, being floating the idea during that era was pretty controversial. Well, and science fiction has had a long history of sort of looking at these ideas from a very different point of view. I mean, um, th- this might be going down a different avenue, but uh, s- the book Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein from that era. Now, I-, I was not alive during that time, but many many academics have told me uh, how impactful that book was during that era among college students, to the point that there still is a religious organization that exists as a remnant of it. Uh, called the Church of All Worlds. It's still around. Uh, it's still taken seriously by a lot of people. Are you familiar with a Stranger in a Stranger Land? Other than being name-dropped in that song by Billy Joel? Right? Um, and of course, the Lord of the Rings books uh, part, was part of that era as well. Um, and uh, there was a book called A Canticle for Leibowitz by uh-huh. Walter Miller. Yeah? 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 I mean, for those that know that book, like, oh yeah. Right, and everyone else has never heard of it, but it's but it's a phenomenally interesting book about how the West declines from nuclear fallout, and the the, the consequence of it is Catholicism, and the only hope of sur- human survival is Catholicism. Uh, it ends with the church launching in outer space. I bought it, but I didn't read it. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so these ideas have been latent in our in our culture for a long time. America was founded on the idea of religious plurality. Um, we know from Thomas Jefferson's works uh, that he had a really high respect for Islam in particular and really thought that Islam and, and the American ideals he was putting forward had a lot in common and foresaw America becoming a Muslim, uh, partially Muslim nation or, or having a dominant Muslim uh, presence in this country because of that. Um, I think he was reading things into Islam that might not have been there, but but Islam sort of grew into that for a long time uh, and wanted to be like American democracy, uh, which is what I think is causing a lot of the problems in, in the Middle East, is, is rebelling against that, uh, that westernization. Um, some, some things to throw out there, um, 
is uh, well, let's look at my, my history sheet. Do you all have access to this? No, we'll see it. This is my little timeline of pluralism. And uh, this might get a little technical, but uh, uh, this is my history of like the, how Christians have thought about world religions. And uh, let me just walk you through this, if that's OK. Uh, I want to go back to Augustine of Hippo. Uh, also known as St. Augustine, who I always love when he's a white guy on stained glass windows in Catholic churches because he was from Africa, right? Uh, that's why I always have to say he's from Hippo, which is northern Africa. Um, this was really taken up as a serious question uh, in his earlier work, De Vera Religione, uh, or On the True Religion, all right? um, where he came up with three categories of people. And this has really stuck in Roman Catholicism ever since, and this has really shaped how the West has thought about religions other than itself. And these are three categories. Uh, pagans, who are those who are not Christian or Jewish, and by pagan, and that's what he meant by pagan, and that's not the way pagan means in an academic sense or in a popular sense, but for Augustine, anyone who isn't a Jew or Christian is a pagan, okay? A heretic is somebody who knows the true religion but rejects it. So uh, Protestants weren't around then, but Protestants, right? Or anyone who deviates from the, the orthodoxy of the church. And then Jews had a special category that was somewhere in, in the middle, but they were given special salvation different from others. So pagans were anyone who wasn't one of us. Heretics were uh, those who used to be like us, but aren't anymore. And Jews are sort of like us. Now, why is this so interesting is that when Pope Benedict, or Pope Francis a few years ago, put out a statement or answered some questions where uh, made big news that atheists were saying that, uh, were celebrating that Pope Francis said that atheists can be saved, right? And I always wondered, like, why would atheists care if the Pope thinks they're saved? But what, when I kind of looked at, the con look at his comments, and then he explained it again elsewhere and, and sort of affirmed this, that he was no longer seeing heretics as, he was no longer seeing atheists as heretics, right? He was seeing atheists as pagans, right? It's better to be a pagan than a heretic, right? And in one of the statements, he also affirmed once again that, you know, Protestant communions are, are anathema to the church, right? So he was making very clear, he was more or less saying, you know, atheists are better than Protestants in my view. Right. That's that's the subtext of it. Right. Um, and uh, this. So this is where I see this really sort of happening. Like it's it's better to be a, a pagan than a heretic because a heretic knows the true faith and rejects it because only a fool would do so. Uh, later on in his text, De Doctrina Christiana, which is on the Christian uh, doctrine, um, he invents what's now known as what we call liberal arts education. The question became uh, as later in life. Uh, as a bishop, how do we train priests? And Augustine did not grow up in, in a, as a Christian. His mother was a Christian, but his father was not. Uh, he practiced a religion called Manichaeanism, which is a, a discussion for another time. Um, but And he sort of brought that all in with him while claiming to reject it. And so he made the claim that priests should be trained in non-Christian religions and non-Christian philosophy, because up until that point, Priests were forbidden from, training, from learning a lot of mathematics, 
a lot of music theory, a lot of philosophy, a lot of literature, because there was a sense that anything outside of the church is false. And Augustine said, no, some of those things were right. There was partial truth to them. So in this view of, his, of pagans, there is a partial truth there, but not in a whole truth. And he felt that to be able to explain it to people, and there was a social uh, obligation to the church to educate priests in these matters. Nicholas of Cusa came a long time later, and he was the first Christian writer to write about uh, the Islamic faith who actually read the Quran. There's lots of stuff written about the Quran and Muslims before this, but Kuza is probably the first serious writer who actually read the Quran and actually knew something about Islam uh, when he wrote about it. And his earlier work is called De Passe Fidei, or On the Peaceful Faith or Fidelity, Unity of, of Peace. Um, he says that all religions are born with the same wisdom. It's written as a story or, or like a little vignette of, a, it starts sort of like a joke, a, a Jew, a Muslim, and an imam meet at the gates of heaven and have a conversation, right? And it doesn't really end with who goes into heaven at the end, but we hear the conversation. And the point of it is this, his famous line is, unity precedes plurality, plurality participates in unity, which is to say that all religions are born of the same truth, right? And he argued that Muslims inherently affirm the trinity of Christianity in their denial of it. So that even when Islam says that they reject the Christian understanding of God by virtue of the trinity, that's their, they're really saying deep down the opposite of what they're saying, which is namely that, uh, that what, Christian, what they see as a Trinitarian view is an inherently false view of Trinity, but they're affirming what the Christians are really believing. So Muslims might even have some secret knowledge or, or some privileged understanding of what the Christian God is because they are able to have this distance that looks at it differently. Right? Later on, he wrote... Uh, Cribratio al Qurani, which is a, a critique of the Quran or scrutiny of the Quran. Um, and uh, I think he had some pressure to sort of to, to tone down his writing. Uh, and he, but this was the first sustained Christian response to the Quran. All right? And he concludes that the Quran is full of truth, but there isn't anything true in it that isn't already stated in the Christian Bible. Right? There's truth in it. But it's, what is true is just restating what's already in the Bible. And he says the Quran is mostly good, but it requires a Christian to make it good. Now, I hope you're, we might see, and I have this at the top of my little handout here. The recurring theme is your religion is true insofar as it conforms to mine. Right? And every way that Christians come up with a different way of saying this, it ends up being the same thing. Right? So the Quran is mostly good, but it requires a Christian to be able to interpret this religion, which came after Christianity, right? The only way of being a true, true Muslim is to be a true Christian, and the true way of being a Muslim is to be a Christian, and vice versa. I probably screwed that up a little. Skipping ahead, Karl Barth, who we've talked about before in here. I think when we talked about the descent into hell, I talked a little bit about this. Um, early on his, in his text, uh, Church Dogmatics, uh, he tries to take the question of salvation off the table, right? So much of this conversation is wrapped up in who gets saved and who doesn't. He wants to take that off the, off the table, but he says that all religions are idolatrous, but Christianity is only a little less idolatrous than others, right? All religions are more or less bad, but Christianity is less bad than the others, right? Um, and he, he claims a kind of universalism, which is that God offers a universal salvation to everybody. 
Although not everyone might accept it or might all receive it, but it's offered freely, right? And it's a choice of individuals to take. Karl Rahner, who is a very controversial Catholic uh, uh, theologian who, um, I, I hate to call him controversial because he's so important and relevant in 20th century Catholicism, um, wrote that non-Christian religions are supernaturally graced until they're faced with Christianity directly. Um, if you skip down a little bit, um, he says that the salvation of God is anonymously given to everyone regardless of their religious backgrounds. But when it comes to practice, if a Hindu is practicing Hinduism correctly, they're really practicing Christianity. If a Buddhist is practicing Buddhism correctly, they're really secretly a Christian. But at the same time, Christians that don't practice Christianity lately are really in bad trouble. Right? You're playing with fire when it comes to the true religion. So you better get it right. But at the same time, the Hindu who's really practicing Hinduism the right way, which is, say, the Christian way, is more likely to find salvation and be true than someone who claims to practice Christianity with their lips but really doesn't practice it in their heart. Right? This idea was called the anonymous Christian, and, and um, uh, he got in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, I think he was... Con was it Cardinal Ratzinger forced him to only give, he wasn't allowed to teach theology and he only gave like youth retreats in the Alps for the rest of his life. Paul Tillich is my favorite philosopher and I have him here. What's interesting about Tillich is this idea that, uh, and, I, and I like Tillich because I think he subverts some of the problems with some of this, but um, more or less that he names God as ultimate concern. Whatever ultimate concern is, is what God is. And people might say what God is, but what they're really concerned with is what God is. So it's more about what your actual beliefs are and what your practices are and what your actual thinking is, rather than what you say you believe. So um, he didn't say this, but a, a, I think it was Reinhold Niebuhr said, similar to this, that uh, if you want to know who your God is, look at who you're writing your checks to in your checkbook. Right? That's what concerns you ultimately. Um, and he came up with this sort of language game that whenever you speak about God, you're immediately making an idol out of the word God. So you have to say God above God, right? Or be, he came up with the idea of being itself, right? It was this philosophical language for God. Because you could, not, you could not use any language that actually captures what God is, which is a very Jewish concept. Um, he famously said that atheism may be more Christianity than Christianity, Atheism may be more Christian than Christianity. And he called himself a Christian atheist. Very interesting. Schubert Ogden, a process theologian, wrote a great little book called Is There Only One True Religion or Are There Many? It's great when they write a book that's a question. Um, and he says that, and I, I like this a lot, he says that you can only experience a religion to be true or not. Right? You can't cognitively say, yes, I believe this. You have to experience it to be true if it really is to be believed to be true. But because we have to experience a religion to be true means that it's impossible for us to really know whether another religion is true or not. Because you can't practice two religions. Right? That's an important point he makes here. Um, but he says it is possible that with, long, with living together and practicing together and dialoguing together, one may be able to validate that there is more than one true religion. So it's possible that there's more than one true religion. It's just that it's really hard to be able to say whether we can even know that. 
Uh, George Lindbeck, um, this might be a little bit more uh, uh, complex, and I'll, I'll leave this to you to look over if you want. But the, the main idea is that there's different kinds of truths. Like when we say truth, that isn't just one thing. There's different kinds of truth. And this is before Stephen Colbert came up with the idea of truthiness, right? Um, more or less that we can speak of categorical truths, which are truths within this particular sect of religion, or ontological truths that might transcend different sects, um, but are saying something uh, directly about the nature of the universe in addition to my beliefs. So for a Protestant to say Mary is the mother of Jesus is, is a uh, systemic truth. That means something in, very specific in Protestantism. But if you go into the Catholic Church and say Mary is the mother of Jesus, that means something very different about the nature of the universe. Right? That's an ontological truth. Christians don't ascribe that statement, Mary is the mother of Jesus, as an ontological truth in most cases. Uh, whereas intrasystemic truths are truths that transcend these things, which are don't kill people, don't lie, don't steal, right? And so how you can validate the truth or falsehood of a religion is based on whether they violate intrasystemic truths or not, right? So if religion ultimately leads you to blow up people, then we can probably say that either you're getting your religion wrong or your religion is entirely wrong. Right? So for as, for as much as it used to bother me whenever I hear President Bush, second President Bush, like make statements about what is true Islam and what isn't true Islam, right? Because who's he to say what true Islam is, right? But that's the perspective that's happening here. Like if your religion caused you to blow up, blow up people in cars, I can say from a, from a pretty safe point of view that that's a false religion or you're getting your religion way wrong, right? That's a reasonable thing to say. Um, I put Tillich on here twice. All right, so that's because Tillich is awesome. <laughs> so the problem that keeps coming back over and over again is can there be, not only is there more than one true religion, and for the history of Christianity, it's always often no, but there's this sense that I want to validate that something in your religion must be true. And philosophers of religion came up with this really interesting set of terms that they use that, is, um, that are these. Uh, the first is exclusivism, which is mine's the only true religion. Truth is exclusive to me. I used to take a class, uh, a philosophy class with Paul Griffiths at the University of Chicago. And when he would say this, say this, by exclusivism, I mean my religion practiced by my sect, by my church, on my street. That's exclusivism. Pretty much nobody except who's related to me is wrong. Right? Um, inclusivism is that my religion is a true religion, but yours may be as well. But again, only insofar as it conforms to mine. I always, whenever I meet with clergy and, and they start testing me on, dial, on doctrine, um, which I, I never really understand why they're obsessed with this, because I'm the, I'm the theology nerd here. Why are you obsessed with this? Um, it's because they're trying to test whether I am in the sphere of ownness of their, of their doctrine, right? And if I deviate that, you know, the, the tribulation's going to happen before something or the tribulation happens after something else, then you're false, right? We've met Christians like this. They live around us. And of course, universalism is a term that gets thrown around. It's more of a theological term than philosophy, which is about salvation. Do people get, what happens to people when they die, right? Do, do uh, non-Christians 
benefit from anything that Christianity promises. The problem with these terms is that these are inadequate terms. So philosophers start combining these terms, and this is where it gets fun, all right? So no one is really an exclusivist, per se, but, and no one is really an inclusivist, but different tinges of these. So an exclusivistic inclusivist, <laughs> right? So an exclusivistic inclusivist, what might that be? Inclusivist that's a little more exclusivistic. It means that, remember, inclusivism is my religion is true and yours may be true as well. Well, an exclusivistic inclusivist says there are religions that are clearly not true, but mine definitely is, and yours might be too. An inclusivist would say yours may be true, but an exclusivistic inclusivist would be willing to say yours is definitely not true, there's no truth to be had. Now, that might sound ridiculous, but I think that's what a lot of people are. Right? Because a lot of Christians will hear someone say something about atheists. Well, they're immoral. They got nothing to say. Right? Someone's a Muslim. They're immoral. Fundamentally, they got nothing to say. Right? From the outset, there's a false religion. Satanists. Right? Mormons. I was just reading something about uh, practice, the practice of sex magic in early Mooney practice. Remember the Moonies? Right? Interesting stuff. Right? Um, who have gained new popularity because they have got, they bring in AR-15s in their worship services, right? Uh, which has become popular here in Pennsylvania, right? Um, inclusivistic exclusivism, which is that my religion is absolutely true, um, but um, yours may be true again only insofar as it conforms to mine. But mine, only my regime of truth is the true truth. And we can play with these around, like what would be a, a, an inclusivistic, exclusivistic inclusivism, right? This is the kind of stuff that philosophers do. This is the kind of stuff that philosophers do. Uh, seriously, if you take a graduate class on philosophy of religion, that's what you're going to do. Um, so let me put in one other kind of piece to play with, and then I, I really want to hear what you have to say. The other thing I put in here uh, for you to pick up, and I, I only print a few copies, and if you need another one, I, I can print them up or email it to you. Uh, this is a phenomenal article that was in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, who are having their annual meetings right now in Denver as we speak. I thought this was fantastic when it came out. Um, this doesn't sound so interesting in the title. Uh, I can give you mine then. Category and Practices, Two Aspects of Religion, the Case of Nepalese and Britain. Uh, now, there's different kinds of the study of religion. One's more social scientific. The other one's more theological. This is a social scientific view. Um, so these are like anthropologists studying religion. And uh, so it's written in, in that way, looking at statistics. Uh, and if you go through it, it actually does have some hard statistics and, and some methodology it talks about. Um, and this was published in, uh, I don't know what year, within the last five years. 2012, so last seven years. Essentially, um, there's lots of stuff out there like this, but I really like this, and sometimes when I teach this, I give this one to students because it's all compact, and I think it's easy to read, uh, which is that they're looking at religious makeup of people who live in Nepal. We all know where Nepal is, right? It's like India's hat, okay? So 
In Nepal, there is a wide, it's a small country with a relatively small population with a wide variety of beliefs. And in here, it actually kind of shows, you know, the, how it breaks down that, um, you know, if you look at page 982 is on the left page, right? And it compares to Nepali immigrants to England. So the question is, how does the, the religious makeup of Nepal is really interesting. Does that change when they come to another country? And there's a significant Nepalese con- uh, community in London uh, or in greater London. So it, it, it uh, fleshes this out. And, um, you know, it shows that in, um, in Nepal, now these are old numbers, uh, Nepal's 2001 census shows that 80% of, of uh, Nepalese are Hindu, right? Uh, Hindu and Buddhist, not an option. Buddhist, 11%. Kirant, 4%. Kirant and Hindu, not, not a possibility. Kirant and Buddhist, not an option. Muslim, 5%. Christian, less than 1%. But when you look at the left column, when it looks at Nepalese that come to America, it would not surprise you that the number of those practicing Christianity goes up a little. But you'll see that the stuff that's not an option there suddenly becomes an option. Even, even significant percents, you know, maybe about just under 20% of the whole population is practicing a religious hybridity that isn't seen as not an option and does not show up at all on, on their census statistics. Right? And the article even goes into some further stats, uh, which you can look at if you want, uh, that are normally mostly saying that even when you interview people, they downplay their religious hybridity. And it explains one interview they were giving, uh, taking some ethnographic data from, where the person was saying that they're not really practicing a religion, but then they look around their house and there's relics of Hinduism, and there's a Christmas tree, and there's a picture of the Buddha there, and, but we don't practice a religion, right? But that when it comes to are you an atheist, that's not really a, an option here. That's not part of the language, right? So clearly that's not what it is, or if it is, it's a different, a new kind of atheism that's emerging. But I don't think that's what it is, right? So what this is all to say that this really challenges Western understandings of what is a religion and what isn't a religion. For example, when we talk about Hinduism, Hinduism isn't one religion, Right? Hinduism is the religion, all the religions that sort of are indigenous to the, the Indus Valley, you know, the subcontinent of India. But Hindus generally don't see disagreements among their various religions too much. Now, when it comes to Buddhism, that's often seen as something different. Other kind, Jainism, Sikhism are seen as different. But all these other religions are more or less compatible in one way or the other, even if you're only practicing one particular way of doing it. And Hindus always tell me that it's, Hinduism is so overwhelming as a religious system that you could not possibly practice more than one little tiny aspect of it, right? Um, but uh, why do Hindus get into, get into so much friction with Christians and Muslims there? Well, because they don't like bound, people that put boundaries on their religions, right? And the history of India as a, as a post-colonial nation is really wrapped up on Christian nations coming in and putting borders around their religious their religious uh, presences in ways that they shouldn't have done, that weren't there before, right? So, 
can we practice more than one religion? I'm going to put out there that I don't think we have a, there's much to say about that because people do do it right now. Whether it's a good idea to is another question. But does anyone really practice more than one religion? Because that's what this article is suggesting is that when you look at it, nobody really practices one religion or that the hybridity of it, we don't have a language for in Western terms. And a lot of times Eastern religious folks don't have a good terminology for it because when they talk about religion to Western scholars, they're using the categories that we impose on them to describe it. You follow me so far? So let me ask you, does anyone practice more than one religion? Do you understand what I'm saying? Or? Yes? No? Are you saying that Methodism, Lutheranism, uh, all those, full of those, that fall under the umbrella of Christianity are each different religions? Let me give you an example. The first Sunday of Advent coming up here is in two weeks, three Sundays from now. Um, after church, we're going to put up Christmas decorations. There's going to be one big Christmas tree in here, two in the sanctuary, and do we put another one out in the narthex here? And I'm being told that there's one going on downstairs too. Like, why do we put Christmas trees up? Right, I'm sure that I was told at some point there's Christmas trees in the Bible, um, but there's not. In fact, the Quran has a great story about the birth of Jesus, that Jesus was born under a palm tree. And as Mary was giving birth, as soon as he started coming out, the, the baby started prophesying. And uh, the, the tree bent down to give Mary dates to sustain her. You know, Because no man, there was no one there, no man present to, to defile Mary. Right. So the, Christ, the Islamic Christmas tree is a palm tree. Why do we do that? Because what we believe today, hmm? what we believe today, and what, as Christianity, in so many ways, is an amalgam of beliefs that people were holding when they began the geopolitical movement to try to crystallize a religion that could be used politically to control uh, large areas, hmm. large kingdoms, which is a great deal of what drove uh, the formalization of religion in the early centuries. It was very much a geopolitical thing, which is true of many areas of Islam and which actually um, and many other religions are very much affected by the geopolitical environment where they sort of are mm -hmm. and um, that's where oh, a great deal probably the majority of what we practice today was based on this attempt to sort of merge the old traditional things with the new thing 
so that they could have something they could set up rules for so they could find a way of controlling people and making them adhere to those rules. Right. I mean, we see that in the Bible with the imposition of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, that the, uh, the Jews at the time, Second Temple Judaism, was required to worship the, the emperor. As long as you worship the emperor as the son of God, you could practice whatever you wanted for the most part, as long as it didn't create an insurrection. When Jews started having insurrections, that's when they got into trouble with Rome. Right? That's why the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70, or roughly around there. The, so part of monotheism in the ancient world was an invention largely to get everyone on the same page because you could take people with varying multiplicities of divinities and say, but you know what? Those gods are really just angels or different categories of angels, but there is one supreme God above them, right? That's how Zoroastrianism, which we mentioned before, became a big religion really fast under the Persian Empire. And when the Persians would invade countries, they would let them practice whatever religion they wanted instead of destroying their villages and taking them all in slavery. Right? Well, people, I don't want to say people welcomed them in to invade them, but it was much better to be invaded and taken over by the Persians than it was the Babylonians because they took you into slavery and tried to destroy your religion. Right? The Persian Empire grew and they could get everyone on the same page because it's a lot easier to get people to fight wars for you if they all believe the same stuff. Right? Monotheism made no sense to the ancient world. Absolutely no. It, it was an unsophisticated thing to only worship one God because you can't account for the problem of evil if you have one God, which is a problem for another time. But, um, but yeah, so absolutely. Uh, the way in which religions have been used for geopolitical uh, means, particularly with uh, empire building, is, uh, is part of Christian history. But I also think it's part of what Christianity was trying to diffuse. Christianity was against that from the outset. Mm, I, don't, I disagree with that. I think if you look at the book of Re Revelation, that's what's going on there. history it seems like that you know they every they set up their rules so they can beat everybody else up oh i don't disagree with you not about that following their rules and that has been sort of the push i think of religion they it's right here and unless you're right here you can't and if you're not right here, then you're wrong, wrong, wrong. Was well, trying to wrong. impose boundaries on a world that doesn't work well with boundaries. It makes it simpler to live. But I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. The history of Christianity has been largely wrapped up in this. But I also think if you look at first century Christianity, I think that's a hard, I think it's hard to make that conclusion. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I find the book of Revelation so interesting because I think it, it is a very direct statement against the empire and the, the homogenization that empires represent, right? Uh, to the point that to, to knock down the Roman Empire would create this cataclysm. Um, in the same way that if, they, if the U.S. went away, what would that do to the world? You know, and not in like the, you, the world needs the United States. 
But what would that do to the economics and affect everybody in the farthest reaches of the earth? Right? Empires have to topple. Right? But, um, and, and I think uh, they, part of what the early Christian church really early on was about seeing itself as this, this not so much an anarchy, but a, a movement that was clearly against the, the empire, which is what Christianity got in trouble for early on. But then as soon as they got into the empire, they started doing what everyone else did. Right. You were making a remark about how other countries would be in terms of the United States. Um, most of my family is in Canada. And when we were having our elections the other week, I remember, I don't like much because I just, I said I Canada is America's hat. I'm a mud We don't even know we're doing it. Yeah, it's we're practicing it's paganism wrong. without even realizing it. And, and so then you think about the fact that some of our cultural things that we actually do come from places like we were saying earlier, the Druids and stuff like that. It's like you don't even realize where it has. Like I've sort of gotten in my life to the point that I believe in God, and I think God is. I like what you're saying, and um, but here's where I would challenge that. I, I'm I'm with you on if someone says they believe in God, it's not my place to like dissect their theology, except when it involves flying planes in the buildings. Well, that's it. See, to me, God is a God of love, and that's where I think we get into problems too. Well, but then we're then we're theologically dissecting what we mean by God and what God wants, but and what God means by love. And by love, it might mean the best thing to do is to take a whole bunch of people out. And that's where it's really hard, and that's why you need conversations like this. I agree. I was I thinking agree. about the Christmas tree. Was <laughs> why not? <laughs> you want to resist the Christmas tree, but let's bring us back. <laughs> well, and in Bob. Where was this again? At Consolidated School Business in Lancaster. Yeah. yeah. So there's a big refugee population in Lancaster. Right. Um, many of them are from Nepal. And so we had about six students from Nepal. And um, and, they, and and we got to talk about traditions one day just to learn more about each other. And they're like, oh, yeah, we put up Christmas trees. One of my closest friends in high school was And Jewish. so I think, you know, for them it was like, well, this is, we live in America, so this is what we do. 
so it was more a cultural fitting in than an understanding or even thinking about the what where it came from or which I think is true for a lot of Christians too. <laughs> I mean I've had students who are Vietnamese who yeah. didn't realize that Christmas was a religious holiday until they came here because they saw it as a gift-giving holiday for the winter and the Christmas trees and Santos. They didn't really question where it came from. It was just this, uh, this uh, mechanism of capitalism that they, they celebrated at the end of every calendar year. And, uh, but they had no idea there was this religious aspect to it, right? That Christmas has become completely secularized in parts of Asia. It's fascinating, right? But back to my earlier question, like, I, I don't want to get tripped up in like Presbyterian versus Methodist because I don't think Christians even think in those terms anymore uh, for the most part. Um, but it, do Christians practice more than one religion? Do people practice more than one religion? And maybe beyond a Christmas tree, which is probably the, the easy example, um, what, what other ways might that happen or how would you resist that? You can disagree with me. On that topic, being raised Catholic, we were always taught that our faith came from three areas. There was scripture, tradition, and then the Pope. And so we were always taught from early, early, from early kids that a large part of what we did didn't come from the Bible, mm -hmm. didn't really had, had no scriptural basis, we just did it because we did. And and, and, and then as you kind of learn, you learn a lot of it because a lot of it was because it was adopted from, quite frankly, from cultures of other religions. And, and as I became an adult and started to understand basically Protestants were a thing, you know, because as a kid, you don't really think, you know, you kind of think religion is only one. I was always struck by how non-sophisticated Protestants are in their understanding of their own faith. You know, the Christian identified that to like little kids, like, hey, huge parts of your faith, two thirds of your faith comes from other than the Bible. You know, two thirds of it. You know, that, you know and, that's, and that's just something that's reality to your life. But in Catholic defense, though, yeah. the tradition created the Bible. Right? So what stands above, does, does the tradition, and by the tradition I mean church and all of its practices, what stands, which stands above the other, the Bible or the church, right? And for Catholics, and I think they're right about this, the Bible is a product of the church's creation. The church existed prior to the Bible. The church, the apostolic succession begins with Jesus and St. Peter. Um, and the Bible is something that comes later and is assembled later and can be changed. Uh, at the beginning of every Catholic council, ecumenical council, they affirm the, the canon of the Bible, the books of the Bible, to sort of reassert that we have the power to change this if we want, although they never do. Um, but that the Bible is the book of the church. Now, Protestants see this opposite way, which is not really rooted in history, um, but prioritizes the Bible over the church. Um, and uh, Methodism, if I said I wasn't going to go to, in the denominations, but Methodism, interestingly, really radicalizes this, that it's tradition, scripture, reason, and experience are your four modes of revelation, which I think has most... Americans sort of work on that principle that, you know, philosophy and reason tells me one thing. I experience things that show me things that are different. And scripture sometimes is contradicted by those things. And, uh, and the church is sometimes contradicted by those things. But reason and experience can outweigh these things. So therefore, we have female pastors. 
right? So, well, that's quite literally how that happened, right? Particularly in the Methodist Church where they used to believe in the quad, it's called the quadrilateral. Uh, Methodists are actually saying that this isn't Christian anymore, but that's what method, that's the method of Methodism, that's what it is. So, um, and I think most Protestants have sort of adopted that even if they don't use that language. Um, but, yeah, I mean, where, what is the source of revelation, church or Bible, right? Um, but you have to acknowledge that if you are going to put the church or the tradition in there, there's clearly like paganism that's snuck in there, right? And for that reason, there are Christians that will not celebrate Christmas, right? One time I had a Jehovah Witness knock on my door right before Easter, and I asked, so how do you guys celebrate Easter? And they're like, I don't know what Easter is. I'm like, well, it's the day of Jesus' resurrection. And they're like, oh, we call that Resurrection Day, right? They, it's the same day, but they won't call it Easter because they know that that's, that's a pagan reference. They don't want to go there. It's sinful to do so. Let me throw out there. I mean, most of us are on social media. Most of us probably. Um, I've been really appalled by the language I'm seeing from a lot of my pastor colleagues about immigration right now um, because I, I immigration I think is part of the discussion of our you know true religions and non-true religions um, and it's so clear that's one of the themes in the Bible that's so consistently clear is to always welcome the stranger always welcome refugees right that's I don't think there's a place where you could possibly contradict that in scripture at all um, but why on earth are we seeing Billboards on Route 70 outside of St. Louis proclaiming Donald Trump the Messiah. <laughs> no, this happened. Really? Like the United Church of Christ denomination yeah, president Christ. posted it and validated that it was real, yeah, and I had other people show, show it. It came Route 70. Because I, I showed it to Chris and I said, I said I didn't believe it at first. I said he didn't believe it. I said, listen, the president of the United Church of Christ, I said, if he's sharing this, you know that he And someone else I know there took another picture of it and said it was real. So now I know that's not a majority opinion, but what, what is going on? Like, I, I think the president of the United Church of Christ, I think the word he used was, you know, I think he said, I don't use this word very often, but this is heresy. Well, Bill Moore did say the word made flesh with... Uh, yeah, that's what it said. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah which... which I mean, that's what it said. Yeah, yeah I, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but even I was appalled by that. So. Especially, is it more offensive that it's Donald Trump or that it's misreading Plato there? <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Some of you know what I'm saying. So, um, is that a religious hybridity? Of course it is. That's that's sort of where I'm driving this today. We, we talked about this before, just having the American flag in the church is, is uh, hybridity because we're, we're combining those two things synchronistically as, as being one representing the other. Uh, and that's not the case in either doctrine. Yeah, it's illegal in some European countries to have a national flag in a, in a church or any flag in a church. Because they know what happens when you do that. Yeah. I, I found it interesting on uh, the social media. Some people 
issue of heresy because you know, the Bible does say that you know, we're supposed to, you know, that, you know, about that religious leaders are, that political leaders are appointed by God, you know, and it's kind of through, but it's really kind of misreading of that scripture. But I look at it more like, but these are the same people for eight years bad about Obama and they're bad about the before. So when you're so, it's okay to do it when you're doing it. So there's definitely like right now. We had a member walk out of this church when I said yeah. in church one Sunday this summer that that's. Yeah. The way they're using the Bible here is not only way out of context, it's actually against very American principles of how we understand ourselves. And I never saw that person ever again. But right now, there definitely is a faith, you know, for like, you know Trumpism is in a faith that's merged in, you know, with even many evangelical faiths, you know? Yeah. Or maybe, like, more broadly speaking, I think it's easy to like look at evangelicals and sort of pick on them because that's not who we are in this room, I don't think. But um, is it possible that Christianity in America, for the most part, has just fallen prey to being this sort of neoliberal capitalism, right? In that we sort of validate whatever is generally good for America as what's good for what's good for the church, and the church sort of there's this sort of uh, reciprocal back pattern that sort of goes on ideologically between what it is, quote-unquote, America is and what Christianity is um, in really subtle ways. So it's not so much like when the genocide was enacted on Native Americans. For the most part, churches look the other way. For the most part, right? Even like ones that have, like ours, that have a long tradition of being the first to welcome other people and have black fat pastors and so on. You know, the Congregationalists largely look the other way, right? American, white America is completely guilty on this. But that's one side of it. But on the other side of it, um, if you went into a, uh, a bar in Nashville and started talking about how the United States robbed Hawaii from the Hawaiian people, How's that going to go over? What if you said, my church teaches that that was wrong? Well, what church is that? People, American soldiers died on that territory. American blood made that a, a state. I mention that because the United Church of Crisis sometimes works for Hawaiian independence, which we don't talk about too much because we, we know that that would piss people off. Hmm? Right now, that seems like a weird thing to get beat up over, but, but just that seems to point at a fracture. It points at the fractures of what it is that we understand as America to say, well, we must have done them a favor by making them a state. Right? Think of all the welfare money we pour into that place. Right? That, you know, we move people there because we wanted the vote to go a certain way. You know, I mean, that's maybe an obscure example, but what I'm getting at is, is, is Christianity even practicable as a pure religion in the present? Or it, it maybe the category of pure religion just isn't a valid thing either. I mean, I, you know, you were talking about Hawaii. I mean, my God, look at Puerto Rico for mm. crying out loud. I mean, some of those mm. poor souls still don't yeah. get electric. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these people, 
people mm -hmm. are theoretically American citizens of, you know, it's a protectorate. I mean, and we, we treat them like trash, basically, is how, how we treated them. I mean, what, what all these white Americans need to start thinking about is that unless you're a full-blooded Native American, you came from somewhere else. And, you know, uh, we all came from somewhere. You know, I mean, Europe, Russia, wherever, South America, I mean, unless you're a full-blooded Native American, I mean, I'm part Native American, but the rest of me came from some places, came from But Europe, I mean, even like... Scotland and Wales. And even like self-congratulatory liberals like myself, um, you know, when we look at the Puerto Rican situation, we can have outrage about it, we can feel empathy for it, but ultimately we don't do anything about it. Yeah, well, you don't even hear about it on the news anymore. I mean, adult Americans have a notoriously short attention span, um, you know, uh, and if, you know, and if they don't put it on the news, we're like, but it's gone. All better now. All better now. Yeah. Like the migrant caravan. Yeah. They're outside Tijuana. Like all those kids that are still lost in, in turn because their parents yeah, I mean, were sent back. For example, I, the caravan is still ha a thing, yeah. right? The so, they're setting up camps. Now, whether uh, they're really sending 15,000 people to block these, how many thousand unarmed yeah. migrants? And there's, um, the military is there? Yes, and yeah. now there's private militias behind the military with their own guns. Yeah. So, it's going to be a mess. Yeah, it's it's going to be horrible. It'll be like some kind of horrible, bad nightmare. So, here's what I'm getting at. Like, there aren't, obviously, there are people that disagree with this. Obviously, there's people that find this deeply problematic. Clearly, there's polit political stunts on, on, on every side around this issue. But, I don't think there's a lot of outrage from most Christians about the, the soldiers coming down. There might be outrage about denying people at the border, right? I think there's outrage about that. But when it comes to soldiers coming down, right, it seems like it's entirely okay to put our own folks at danger or put them in a position of firing on unarmed people or to take them away from their families for something that is all about how we label people coming into the country, right? That's what the argument is about. Do we label these people immigrants or refugees or, or asylum seekers? We're coming in at a, at a legal point of entry. Meanwhile, we have prisoners fighting fires in California at a dollar an hour. We're paying them a dollar an hour. Did y'all see that Kim Kardashian's house had its own private fire department? <laughs> It saved their mansion. Her and Kanye's mansion got saved. Private fire department. I mean, wow. That's the American oligarchy. Uh, you know what do you think? Money I was going to say that's the future of libertarians. Mm. <laughs> that's a joke. Well, libertarianism is another topic. <laughs> um, I went to the Libertarian State Convention here in Pennsylvania once. But.
that's a story for another time. But um, I mean, is is it possible that it's? I mean, this. I'm asking us to take a hard look in the mirror and say, what is it that I'm doing that really is a hybrid of something that's so close to me that I refuse to acknowledge it? Right, and that's hard to do. It's hard enough for people to see that that uh, uh, Christmas trees are not really Christian, and I don't have a problem with that. But let's just be honest about what it is, right? Um, is, maybe it's not so much that we're practicing Hinduism and Christianity or practicing Judaism and Christianity, um, but it's some sort of neoliberal capitalism, some sort of Americanism, um, some sort of obsession with libertarian ideals uh, draped in free market capitalism with Christianity. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is where out there. I think going back to your previous question about whether there's any such thing as for any ability to have a pure religion, I think there is. It came about within a culture and it's practiced within culture. And as much as some groups may try to keep it quote unquote pure, they're all coming at it from a particular perspective, in a particular time, in a particular place that impacts how they view it and how they practice it. Hmm. To that point, even our, even our language dictates how we think about things. And you know, if, our, you know, if you're an English-speaking person, it's heavily influenced by Christianity, means you not, you know, that it's going to influence your way you think about things. Yeah, so if we acknowledge that it's not really possible to practice a religion in a pure sense, and maybe our category of religion is, is part of the problem of what we mean by the word religion. But if it's inevitable that we don't really have much of a choice when it comes to this, then how do we pick and choose what we sort of, what Lego pieces we sort of add on to the structure we have? I mean, we do it already. If we were going to pick and choose what we do, does that just sort of ultimately become self-serving or does it become something that is subversive? And it's interesting when you when you look at those statistics that are still coming out about the 2016 election, it's really interesting that there's some suggestion that the majority of those that are the most supportive of the president and what's going on, um, or unquestionably, I should say unquestionably uh, supportive, um, all identify as evangelical Christians, but the majority of them do not attend a church service. They're, they're not practicing in an active community. So 
to, and that's a significant enough voting block, especially in the flyover part of the country of, of unchurched ideological conservative Christians, um, that we now have this kind of form of Christianity that is not being challenged by any, by talking to anybody except through electronic media and what's received through internet and what's received through cable television or whatever. Um, and, and I don't want to pretend that this doesn't happen to liberal seculars who get all of their identity through, through other means of, of communication. Um, but it's a, that's, the, that's, the poop, that's the group that elected a president, right? Um, they know that that's a significant enough population. And I don't think Trump knew that going into it. Um, I'm not sure he still understands it. But, um, but, that's, but there is this secularized Christianity that has become doctrinally very conservative, politically nativist, and ultimately doesn't look that much different than what I think we'd see in a lot of our local mainline churches when it comes down to it. Right? So kind of why a lot of when religious leaders speak out against a lot of this, it doesn't resonate with them? Well, right. I mean, I, I think it was interesting. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention came out and made statements pretty clear against the, the immigrant bashing in the election, but it was too little too late. The Mormons came out really hard and strong against the rhetoric against immigrants. But then when Trump came to campaign in Utah, the Church of uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, Quorum of the Twelve or whatever they call it, they, they would not appear on stage at the same time as him, but they were there. Right? Uh, well, pastor of one of the largest churches nearby here, live broadcasted from the evangelical uh, conference that the president called while he was campaigning and gave a live Facebook chat, I watched it, saying that he's convinced that God is speaking through Donald Trump. Yeah. And uh, this is a church with thousands of people on Sunday morning. Thousands of people. Right? No. If, uh, that's the real Christianity. That's the reality of it. If you go into our sanctuary, the rose window at the front has all the symbols of the 12 disciples, and every, every one of those symbols, in one way or another, references their death yes. in some way, which is unusual to find in a Protestant church like this, but that's what's there. I know you mentioned the Reformation, and the Catholic argument against Reformation was that you would have churches that would splinter and splinter and splinter. And eventually, right. you know, eventually lead to things like, you know, quite frankly, completely, completely heresy. Mm -hmm. You know, some, some minister in front of thousands of people preaching heresy to help fill a cloth. 
What did you say about thunderous applause? That, that some minister would, would preach heresy to thunderous, to thunderous applause. You know, like, you know, like, I was thinking of Star Wars when I hear that phrase. Yeah, but that's, but, you know, but that's really what the minister... When Jar Jar Binks ends <laughs> democracy. But that's, but that's really what the minister did, you know, by, by saying that, that, you know, that, that, Trump, that Trump is speaking for God. And that's, that's absolute heresy. I mean... I mean I mean, not even subjectively, you look in the Bible, there's nothing to support anything like that unless, you're, unless you are claiming that he didn't, he's attacked the Messiah, mm -hmm. the Messiah, which is, I mean, would, I, would, I would stay in the dark and like him. Well, to sort of tie a couple things and come to a resolution, maybe not a resolution, but a conclusion. Um, going back to what John said earlier about the... Christianity is a Jewish sect. You went somewhere different than I thought you were going to go. Um, I think that part of what makes us really uncomfortable with this conversation, or what we might not be uncomfortable with, if you went to a lot of churches, I think this would be a very uncomfortable conversation, um, is that we, we love to talk, we identify ourselves in the Christian church as religious hybrids, right? The Old Testament is the Tanakh of Hebrew scripture. Uh, or the Septuagint, however you want to put it together. And so we, we have another world religion's text as the first part of our religious text, right? Um, and Muslims, for example, they don't do that, but they see other religious texts as part of the quote-unquote book. Um, but no other group like ours, and by that I mean Christians, have one religion's uh, text uh, with another one. And again, that was one of the issues of the, denom of the Reformation in that Martin Luther wanted what Jews actually use as our Old Testament rather than what the Catholic Church had started using for the Old Testament. And that's a whole other history. But we are a hybrid of this. We come from Second Temple Judaism. Um, we, we are, the religion itself comes from this milieu of the Middle East that had all sorts of weird things. I mean, coming into Advent, coming soon with, you know, the four weeks that lead into Christmas and in an Epiphany, we talk about the three wise men, right? To me, that story is fascinating about the three kings or three wise men that, that come from the Orient, right? Um, who were they, right? I mean, were they Zoroastrians, suggesting that the Zoroastrians knew who Jesus was before the Jews did? Right? That's, that's a stunning statement about what's going on here. Or, more radically, were they Babylonians who were the enemy who destroyed the first temple? And we know that Babylonians practiced astrology. The Zoroastrians didn't. So maybe likely the Babylonians. The story of the three kings, or the three wise men, are these Babylonians who represent this empire that, destroyed, that the entire second half of the Old Testament is responding to their destruction of the first temple showing up to the, the foot of the baby Jesus and recognizing Jesus as the king of the world, giving him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, whether it happened or not is not material to what it's trying to symbolize in the story. It's saying that this other culture of a different religion recognized Jesus before everyone else did. Right? To, to me, that's like sort of cool and bizarre and, and really compelling uh, and challenging at the same time. Right? Thinking, especially if it's the Babylonians they're referring to, they don't say. 
They don't say the magi. The word used for magi would have been something associated with Babylonians. Right? That's not what we talk about when we talk about the three kings. Right? We we talk about oh these even the kings came, right? But they were these people from this other religion that had very little to do with any of this other than they were the enemy. Right? So there does seem to be this pushing toward religious hybridity. The Gospel of John begins with this reference to Plato, uh, like I said before, which now is a reference to Donald Trump, uh, of, of the word made flesh. Right? There was this intentional hybridity with Greek culture. Right? We are hybrid. This, Christianity is, by definition, a hybrid religion. It's just that we choose to, we've, through history, made it hybrid with different things that maybe don't really go with it, but maybe that's the point, is that making hybrids of things are things that don't belong together. For example, you know, the religion of Sikhism, no Sikh would ever describe as taking Hinduism and Islam and mixing it together, but that's exactly what it is. Right? It comes from a part of the world where the Hindu world's coming up this way and the Muslim world's coming down this way, and they're Sikhism. Right? Things that don't belong together end up going together. So maybe religious hybridity is something to begin to think through more directly, think, but more than anything, I think it's challenging to think through, like, what is it? Why am I thinking this way that has nothing to do with Scripture? Right? Or can I think about being religious hybrid with something hybrid with something that isn't even necessarily politically ideological, but something like atheism? Right? Or maybe well, we've talked about this before, that maybe atheism is sort of latent in the Christian story too. Any parting thoughts? I know I talked a lot tonight. Was this was this making sense or is this sort of I mean, I think on the atheism question, too, I, um, I think a good, have any of you read the main works of new atheism, by chance, like the God delusion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have them in my office if you want to look at them. Um, what's the other ones? Uh, God is Not Great. God is Not Great. Uh, the End of Faith. Yeah, it's by Sam Harris. Sam Harris, yeah. I, I don't remember. Sam Harris is better than the other ones. Um, especially uh, like Dawkins and Hitchens, right? Um, and you've read these, too? Yeah, I mean. Oh. Oh, that's interesting. It's probably Sam Harris because <laughs> I I see Sam Harris as someone who has a lot of legitimacy to what he's saying. The others, though, I mean, we could talk about the arguments against God and all this that they put forward. But one of the things that I've always found interesting for the two of you that have read those is how much Islamophobia is sort of latent in this text too, and how similar it is to evangelical Christian views of Islam, right? Now, I know that that's not what they're trying to argue for, but it's weird that that particular form of atheism would sort of partner up with that ideology and and the sort of reductionistic, you know, of, of being so complex on so many issues, but then being very reductionist on this one, right? Uh, which I, I don't mean to say to like discount the ultimate argument, but uh, I think that for a lot of times we think of atheists, or atheists often think that they're they're stepping aside from this problem um, by by just exiting from religion. When the reality is, is that it's it's there too. This isn't something that 
that is only a disease that, that religious people have. And that's sort of what I'm getting at. It's a contagion no matter where you go. And when I, no, partnering up with other ideologies that might not seem to go with it. Oh, okay, okay. Right? That, um, and this isn't something I thought of the first time I read those books, but after I was sort of tuned into like that way of thinking, there's no, there's, it's not a mistake that those books came out and were popular after 9-11 and during right, the early right. war of Iraq. They're products of that era. Yes, that's the, where do I want to start? Sam Harris, yes, it, it is often criticized for his Islamophobia, and, and he always gets kind of pissed off when people call him out on his Islamophobia. He's like, no one better Islam, I can understand that religion. Uh, no, I don't think he's the worst of No, um, probably not, but like, I'd say that he's probably the one that, that it's most visible with now, especially since Hitchens has died, because mm -hmm. Hitchens was also rather Islamophobic uh, to some extent in his final years. I, I, having read Dawkins, I, I really feel like, like Dawkins is, is like your, your introductory to, to, to atheism, other new atheist guys. Um, and, and I don't really, I, I don't really recall I, that Islamophobia being a great threat in, in God delusion. Um, Personally, as, as someone who identifies as an, as an atheist, I do not feel like I'm Islamophobic. I mean, I, I really look at anyone who's religious as like, does your religion bring you comfort? Does it hurt other people? If it, you know, if, if it doesn't hurt other people and brings you comfort, I'm cool with that as long as you're cool with me. Um, well, that's the reason why I find it so interesting. Um, this is, we, we can do this, Islam and atheism and other stuff. The, uh, I find it so, int my point of bringing it up isn't so much to like dog atheists for being anti-Islamic. Okay. Uh, not at all. Because it's, it, and, and knowing you a little bit, Alan, I, I know that's not where you're at. Right. Um, but why is it that that's so implicit among the, that particular group of writers? My point is that I think it, it is itself, that atheism is a hybridity of the political ideology of its time, which I think is wrapped up in the geopolitical movements around conservative, uh, ultimately conservative politics in the United States at the time, uh, which seems to make no sense of if you're going to make these kinds of arguments uh, and pro-science arguments that you would sort of partner with that way of thinking, but, but it's there. Um, and that's, that's really my point is that these hybrids are there even when it's, you would think that they really don't belong there, right? That's my point. Going back to, to something you said earlier about um, about neoliberalism, mm. um, one, one of the things that the people have, you know, people who study atheism um, have noted the last 10 or 15 years or so is that atheism tends to increase in proportion with living standards, um, so that as a as a population becomes more prosperous, you see religion religiosity going down and, and atheism and agnosticism um, increasing. And so, shoot, where was I going with this? Because um, I think I lost it. Um, I'm talking about neoliberalism. Right, right. Um, and, and so I think that there was some, maybe sort of like maybe an inflection point or really centered around basically 9-11 
Because um, that was actually the point. I, I had been out for as an atheist for a couple of years, and I actually almost went back in the closet um, in the aftermath of 9-11 and the way that people said, God bless America all the time. Mm. And, and it was a very uncomfortable point. Um, and and I, I feel like they were, there, there was, I think, a lot of reaction um, to the increased religiosity of the you know, 2001, 2003 uh, period um, that also then had to do with the way that I, the Iraq war was in some ways framed as a new crusade in the Middle East and a war on religion. Um, so I think that there was just sort of a, a big confluence of events there that, that then would, would spawn into this anti-Islamic sentiment that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a product of its time, um, which, which again uh, is to say that I think one argument a lot of atheists would make against religion, although not the only one, is that this is a problem religions have, so by sidestepping it, we get out of it. And, and I really don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. Um, because I don't think, it, my position is that no one is immune from hybridity. Uh, we're, we're all susceptible to it. I think we can try to transcend it. Um, but ultimately, we're, we're products of an ideology at any given point. Uh, now, whether that's good or bad is another question. Um, well, before... Yeah, I'm okay with Christmas trees. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.